When I talk to people about their meditation practice, and most people admit it's not always regular, it's sometimes sporadic, they, and so on, but most say that to the extent that they choose to formally sit down and meditate, that they really get some value from it. But they also very quickly will say to me, I don't do it enough and I'm not really doing it that well. There's just some kind of generic sense of it's not quite right. And they have a long way to go. And I find that across the board, we carry an idea, some template in us, of how our meditation experience should be. And we have some ideas, like it should be that I get quiet, and it should be that I feel open, and it should be that there's some peacefulness, or maybe not crystal rainbows of light and all that, but, you know, nice feelings. And often, what is the case? Well, we know that we're, we're kind of uh, distracted or running through things that happen in the day or rehearsing something or, or in some way uh, just not where we want to be. And that can be discouraging because there's an undercurrent of not doing it right, which is not a good feeling. There's enough benefit, we get the sense that this is something we can benefit from, but a sense of falling short some. And I sometimes get impatient with the instructions that, that are given traditionally for meditation, which is just relax, just relax. You know that word just? <laughs> Arrive in this moment and say yes to what's happening as if that's like an easy thing to do. And the reality is we are biologically, it's our biological conditioning to be vigilant I sometimes say we have a nervous system, you know, it's, we're not designed to relax easily. And we're conditioned when there's unpleasantness, you know, in our bodies to resist it, you know, to kind of tense against it and not like it and judge it. And we're also conditioned when the mind is at rest, there's something called a default system in the brain. And what that means is that when we're not occupied with things, the brain automatically goes into this default network where it comes up with past experience and future experience and tries to keep that sense of a self kind of sustained. It's our way of kind of perpetuating ourself. So the bottom line is we're conditioned to have the mind wander. The very things we're asked to do in meditation, that's not what comes most naturally to us. That doesn't mean it's not possible to train the mind. It doesn't mean it's not liberating to train the mind. It just means it's not so easy. And if we're inclined to evaluate our meditations, we're going to end up on some level reinforcing the trance of unworthiness. Does that make sense? So I speak this because there's an attitude that really makes a difference as we approach things, which is... um, it's wonderful to be in the present moment and we often are not and it's okay. Even when the present moment is pleasant, we don't hang out very long. Cartoon, it's a girl with her boyfriend, they're getting romantic and in the frame that you see she's looking torn and then the next frame you see her on the phone with a friend and she says, it's such a struggle between being in the present moment and wanting to tell my girlfriend about the present moment, you know? <laughs> I thought that was perfect, you know? It's like we're enjoying things and automatically we start telling, start rehearsing what we're going to tell somebody about that experience, you know? And we postpone our lives, even in spiritual practice, you know, to get down to actually, okay, it's about this moment truly inhabiting presence, right here, that's it, just that. We're more thinking about the meditation or about spiritual life. You know, it's that saying, it's about Zen and reading all the good books written about Zen, you know, which one, Zen and the art of reading all the good books about Zen, you know. And yet our training to be in the present moment goes against our conditioning. How come? if you really get down to it, is that we have a sense of separateness, that we're a self and the world's out there, that leaves us with a lot of uncertainty. I mean, we apprehend our mortality, so we're always living with a sense of something's going to go wrong 
and it really is going to go wrong according to the separate self. You know, we are going to die and we will lose all that we value. That's in our psyche, that's in the background of our psyche. So William James wrote that all religions begin with the cry, help. That that existential uncertainty and fear gives rise to all religion that we're trying to find a way to believe and behave to create more of a sense of safety and security and okayness. So we turn to religion for that and we also turn to what I've described here many times as false refuges. That out of this basic insecurity about am I okay, is my life going to be okay, we get addicted to things, to substance and to proving ourselves and to other people approving of us, we, we get addicted. We get addicted to all our thoughts, all our attempts to figure out how to deal with life. We're constantly lost in our figuring out thoughts. This is from that existential sense of something's wrong or something's going to go wrong. So the Buddha taught in a very elegant way, in the Noble Truths, that it's a given, this unease, that if we're born into bodies and minds, we're going to have this unease that senses, that apprehends that things can not cooperate with us, they're not going to go the way our separate self, ego, wants them to go. That that's universal. And it's also our conditioning to try to control it all, to make it work out. But that very conditioning locks us in prison that as long as we're moving through our day in that conditioned way of trying to make it go right and try to avoid what's going wrong, as long as we're using our false refuges, we can't discover freedom. We can't realize really the truth of who we are. We can't discover really the love that can give us true refuge because we're too busy trying to control things. I've spoken a lot about uh, about how our busyness and our speediness itself makes it so that the very experiences we long for are inaccessible. We can't find peace if we're speeding along. You know, that I talk about the Chinese syllable for busyness as the same as heart killing. We can't live with an open heart if we've got this agenda that's making us race towards the finish line you know, towards death. Yeah, we're going to get there, but we're racing along. So the Buddha and all the mystical traditions I've encountered basically recommend that in the face of this conditioning to try to control things, we choose presence. We choose to pause. We choose to come home. We use this language. We choose to come right here. We choose to come into the very mystery that eludes us if we're busy with our agendas. Over and over again we train. And the training has, I find, kind of comes into two major domains. And one is the training that we practice a lot in our meditations, which is we notice that we've wandered, which is our way when we're sitting of of grasping and aversion. You know, our resistance to the present moment takes all these different forms, but mostly it's we go off in thoughts. So our practice, our training is, oh, notice that you've drifted? Come back here. Sense the nowness. Be with the presence that's right here. That's one of the trainings. That's the one you hear the most. The second training is to remember what we've forgotten. In other words, remember our belonging. Remember love, remember connectedness. And the understanding is that it's not always possible to connect with the present moment. Sometimes it's too scary, sometimes we're too distressed, sometimes we're too disturbed, and we need instead to pay attention to love. It's like Thich Nhat Hanh says, it's not enough to suffer, we have to touch peace also. And so sometimes rather than the instructions, okay, let's be right here in the present moment, it's wiser to reflect 
on where there is a sense of peace or safety or love. And it's that latter training that I want to emphasize tonight. There's a um, cartoon I once saw in a therapist's office and it has this guy sitting and, and there's, there's a doctor standing by him and there's a huge dagger in his back. And the doctor's kind of going, well, of course it's got to come out, but that doesn't address the deeper problem, you know. <laughs> and, and I thought that was really good because, you know, we have this sense that the deeper problem really is, our deep suffering is, we forget who we are. The deep suffering is, every day we're living in a trance, we're telling stories about ourselves and each other that keeps us feeling separate and anxious and not okay. And if it's not extreme, it keeps us from feeling truly alive and free, the stories we live in, every day. So that's the deeper problem. But we can't always arrive in the present moment and un fold or release that trance. Sometimes we need to pay attention to what allows us to feel more safe, what allows us to feel more sense of belonging. In other words, we have to calm down some and be more at ease so that it's safe enough to be in the present moment. So in tonight's exploration, I'm going to use that sequence. If we can't say yes to the present moment, if instead everything in us is going help, that, that basic help, how do we find our way into yes through love? And I'd like to share a story that I thought was really a kind of a stunning example of this, which was, um, how many of you have heard of Baba Ramdas? Can I see by hands? Many. So Ramdas, his English name was Richard Alper. He was a Harvard graduate who went to Asia and got very inspired by Eastern mystical teachings and gave his life to decades of spiritual training and then teaching others. And he had explored amazing range of practices, Buddhist practices, Hindu practices, Advaita, other traditions. About, oh, I think now eight years ago, six years ago, he had a massive stroke. And uh, probably at age like 73 or something. And at the moment of the stroke, he lay in an utterly helpless state. He was staring up at the pipes on his ceiling. And no uplifting thoughts or inspiration came to rescue him. And he tried to reach for mindfulness. Okay, say yes to the moment, not a prayer. He tried to reach for the practices of self-compassion. You know how I teach here, sending messages of care or, or metta. Didn't begin to touch it. Okay, this is the, the dagger was in his back and he could not address the deeper problem. He could not be with reality as it was in the present moment, okay? And as he put it, he summarized that crucial moment. He said, I flunked the test, you know, which is classic Ramdas. He's great in, in that way. But he discovered the gateway back home over the following days by reflecting on the love of his Indian guru who had passed away oh, years earlier, Maharaji. He was trapped in these feelings of physical anguish and powerlessness and helplessness and despair. And in the thick of this crisis, he began to pray to Maharaji. And he had this kind of picture in his room. And Maharaji, to him, represented a very pure emanation of love. By sensing Maharaji's presence, he connected with absolutely pure, universal love. So he meditated and prayed to Maharaji and he felt as soon as he reached out to Maharaji that his guru was there, as uh, immediately there as he had ever been. And with the sense of his presence, everything that was happening was okay. Didn't mean he, the pain went away. It didn't mean that he didn't still feel fear. Didn't mean that he liked what was happening. But it was okay in the sense that he was big enough to hold it. He could be there with it. He was not freed from trance by saying, okay, breathe in, breathe out, name what's happening, come back to, you know, what's in the moment. That it was too much. It was too much of a trauma. It was too overwhelming to his nervous system. There was too big a dagger in his back. He needed to call on love first 
to reconnect him with a sense of his belonging so then he could start being present with what was. To me that's a really important story because the training you're doing here is invaluable and precious, this training of learning to come into the present moment. But it goes hand in hand. It's sometimes described as the two wings of the bird, that there's the wing of of presence and clear seeing, but there's also the wing of love. And unless we can remember our innate belonging to this world, there's often not the safety or balance or resilience to allow us to be with the present moment. So sometimes that's the natural direction to go in. We need a resource that connects us. Now, tonight I'm going to share a story of a woman who was very, very traumatized and how she found her way to healing by calling on love first, calling on safety first, and then gradually with that as the container using the strategies of mindfulness we're doing here. She needed both. It wasn't just that she could call on love and then everything would be healed. The the deep waking up and liberation came from the mindfulness, but the love was the container. But before I tell that story of trauma, I want to say that reaching out and finding a sense of love and belonging is not something we do as a last-ditch effort when we're caught in trauma. There are many moments for many of us when we're just in a reactivity that where there's a wisdom to first practicing some form of loving-kindness or calling on love to soften and open the heart. My example recently of that, my own example, was that last Friday I started getting sicker and sicker and I, ha- I was in Florida, I had to fly down to Florida, I did this 24-hour trip to do a talk to a group of therapists down there. And I knew I was sick, but for some reason when I gave the talk, it was three hours of speaking, I was fine, that sometimes happens. But then two hours later I lost my voice totally, I had total laryngitis, I'm just beginning to get it back. Anyway, so I land up at the airport in Sarasota and I, I was a wreck, I was really sick. But I, but I, I was there in, way in advance and I you know, was ready for my flight when, they, when the message came over the loudspeaker that the flight was canceled, like totally canceled. Now Sarasota is this little airport and it wasn't like there was going to be another, you know, they told me that at best I'd get home at midnight if I you know, stayed around and took a couple of connecting flights and so on. So I dashed, I mean, I dashed to the t- ticket counter and they said, well, that's one option. You stay around and we'll get you, we should get you home by midnight. Now, if you go and take a taxi to Tampa, it's a little tight, but you might be able to catch a flight from Tampa. So rush hour, it was during rush hour and it was a Friday evening. You know what security is like at airports on Friday evenings, right? So I took the chance, got on this cab. So this was my example of my nervous system. It was not like, okay, breathe, feel, yes, yes to the anxiety, yeah, I might miss the flight, yes to that sense of aggravation. It was not like that at all. I was, like, my system was all turned up, and, it, and so all I could do at that time, I was breathing, was to do what I call calling on loving presence. I imagine and sense some benign, uh, luminous presence that's around me, that is, that, that is coming through all the hearts of the universe, but in some way I just imagine right there and I imagine and sense that I'm being bathed in that, that light, that there's a very particular sense of presence and love coming towards me, very particular. And it begins to relax me to feel that that's what's coming towards me. And as I relax, the more I kind of sense love exists, the more I'm then being able to say, okay, fear, okay, upset, anger, because I was a little angry at the setup, you know, and ease my way back into a mindful presence. But that sequence was necessary for me. Does that make sense? That first kind of feel something benevolent, So it wasn't trauma, but I was reactive, and we each need a pathway home. And it's a big experiment. 
that sometimes you'll begin by just breathing and trying to anchor with the breath and, and naming what's going on and other times you might find that you explore how can you call on whatever feels like a safety or love that's a refuge how can you call on true refuge okay so I'm going to give you an example of someone that was far more traumatized and um, one of the reasons I'm doing this tonight is that I feel that early on meditation was taught and it was assumed that everybody could just practice mindfulness and it was almost glazed over that so many of us have trauma in our bodies so many of us so it feels very important to acknowledge that there's a lot of trauma in our culture that in this room there are many many of us that have had trauma in our nervous systems and that to honor that and find well how given that do we make use of these practices so that's why I'm doing that this tonight this is a number of years ago I was working with a a client who also had some exposure to meditation I saw her in, in therapy and she shared a story that for her expressed her own experience and I want to read the story to you but in the beginning of it, it starts where she's seven years old, she's hiding in a closet, terrified after another unexpected attack from her drunken, enraged father. And she's, the little girl is praying, and she's saying, Help, I can't take it anymore. And she opens her eyes to see a fairy in a haze of blue with a glittering wand. And she lets the fairy know that how her father's been beating her and her mother doesn't help, and how she feels that they both really wish she was dead. And the fairy listens with tears in her eyes and then tells her that while she can't make all this pain disappear, she can help her get through this time. She can help her forget and then remember later when she's able to handle it. With a wave of the wand, the good fairy said, I'm going to send things into different parts of your body and they're going to hold them for you until you feel strong enough to let them move freely again. And she explained that she was going to dull and her pelvis and her belly to to block the sexual energy from moving and constrict her heart and her throat so she wouldn't feel the raw intensity of hurt and fear and the need to cry out and she wouldn't have to feel the brokenheartedness and I'll read you the last part you will have trouble feeling and being close to people but it will be your way of surviving at those times that the pain erupts you will find your own ways to control it ways that may not look good to the world but will be of temporary comfort those are the false refuges and you my darling will be fairly functional you'll be a functional human being in spite of all this because you have a strong mind and you can hold all this in and I will be helping you the child looked directly into the fairy's eyes and asked how will you help? will you come back to see me? you will not forget everything I will leave a voice inside you that will urge you to reconnect with your whole self. It may be a very long process, but in time you will feel an urgent calling to step out of imprisoning beliefs, to unwind your body and release what it has been holding all these years. You will learn the art of sacred presence. There will be physical and emotional pain as you open, but you will have what you need, the compassion and wisdom, the support of loving others, to be a whole person spiritually awake but still the same this is because your soul has always been there just hidden by scars of this lifetime the story ends as the good fairy puts her arm around the child's soldiers and gently led her to bed as the little girl finally relaxed into deep sleep the fairy gazed tenderly at the small innocent face and then whispered her goodbye when you wake up you will forget I was here you will forget you asked for help you will forget the sharpness of your daily pain this is the only way I know to get you through this you are a beautiful child I love you and in fact your parents love you although they're incapable of showing it to you you will have to love yourself enough to heal so that when you are older your life will be powerful, full and free one day you will know who you really are you will trust your goodness and know your belonging until then and for always I love you 
I first shared uh, this story here, I don't know how many years ago, but in this room. And after class there had never been so many people that stayed around to share their experience. Because the, the common ground was that so many people talked about how they had felt disconnected from their body for so many years, how they had used food to numb out or their temper to keep people at a distance, and how their very ways of behaving they had felt ashamed of, but they could see that that was their strategy, as if the good fairy had said, okay, it doesn't look good, but this is going to be your way of taking care of a very terrible wound. The step of being able to see that the very behaviors we don't like about ourselves were part of us surviving. You know, they were imperfect strategies, but meant to help us get through a difficult time, whether it's addictive behavior or ways that we push others away or grab on to others or try to move through the world and prove ourselves. They're survival strategies. Clarissa Estes, writer, she wrote Women Who Run With the Wolves, she said, she calls this the not beautiful, the ways that we violate ourselves and others, that they arise from the pain of unlove. So the first step of healing and awakening and what was important with this woman was to unpack the shame around that. That if we can stop blaming ourselves for the ways we've tried to, you know, get through life, then we can begin to start to let love in and start to find some refuge. In a way, the language is to realize that it's not my fault whatever the painful behavior is that seems not beautiful, it's not my fault, which allows us, it enables us to respond. The fear is that if I say, it's not my fault, I'll get indulgent and irresponsible and so on. It's the opposite. When we start unlayering the shame, we actually are able to respond. We become responsible. We're able to start healing. So for her that was a a key first step. The second step for her was that she needed safe refuge in order to begin to bring a healing presence to the places of trauma in her body. She needed the sense of that presence of the good fairy. And for this woman the good fairy emerged as her adult self to be the Divine Mother. She became an expression of the Divine Feminine. And in the therapy that followed, and what I do when I, both in therapy and also when I'm working with students at retreats and so on, is find out where there's some thread of connection with true refuge, with loving presence. And it might be a tree that emanates spirit and love and goodness, and it might be a grandmother that's no longer alive and it might be the Buddha or Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva of compassion or Jesus. It can be any spiritual figure or human figure or living friend that in some way is an expression of or reconnects one with loving presence. And once we have even a tendril of a thread of, well, when I'm with that person I feel a little more safe or accepted or loved. Or when I'm by that tree in the woods or listening to the river there's some earth spirit or energy that I feel held by once we have a tendril we can build on that that becomes our pathway to loving presence that becomes what we reach out to just the way Ram Das reached out to Maharaji so with this woman I helped her to build and uh, flesh out her sense of that loving presence from the good fairy or the divine mother to sensing that kind of field of warmth that enveloped her. This is uh, Hafiz. How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. So we're all, we all belong to this life, but we feel severed. There's a severed belonging. And so part of coming home to a full presence is to begin to sense 
the light against our being, the warmth, the love, the belonging, in whatever way we can. Once this woman had some sense of the Divine Mother, the, the goddess that surrounded her, that love, she gradually began to practice what we do here on Wednesdays and the mindfulness practice of sensing, okay, so what's actually happening in my body? She began to scan through her body and begin, began to be able to be with the experience in her body. And she had other anchors she used when she got reactive or off balance. She learned how to use her breath so that if she got really distracted or needed to feel, okay, I'm here, I'm here, I'm not back there, I'm here, she could feel her breath and she'd just say, here, right here, you know. So what she, we would do, and this is very powerful, is when there's places in your body of trauma, of fear, of anxiety, to gradually be um, like you're putting a foot in the river and then stepping out again. She could put her foot in the river, she could feel some of the squeeze and fear and aggravation and, and terror sometimes. And she'd breathe and she'd imagine the, the light and the warmth of the Divine Mother. But if it felt like too much, she'd step out and she'd open her eyes and she'd talk to me. And she, So she learned that she could go in and out some. And that's a really important practice of mindfulness that we don't have to throw ourselves in, throw ourselves off a cliff. We can titrate it a little at a time. So that was a practice that went on for quite a long time where she'd feel, she'd come in and with me we'd meditate and she'd feel her body and when it felt dangerous she'd imagine and sense love so she could keep feeling her body. She learned to do the self-compassion practice we do here where she'd put her own hand on her heart and she'd send a message in saying, I care about this suffering. And so she'd feel the Divine Mother and she'd put her hand on her heart and feel like that energy was coming through her hand. So she began to be part of the Divine Mother that was offering love to her own self, okay? Her real moment of waking up in freedom where she really healed a lot of the trauma was not when she was with me, but she had done a lot of practice and she was home and she was alone. She had a very frightening memory and she immediately called on the Divine. I mean, she literally said, please be with me. She called on loving presence. And that's really important. It's important to call out a mental whisper, a heart's whisper, an out loud whisper, but to call on loving presence. And she called out in the way she had now become familiar with. She had a kind of neural net that knew how to do it. Okay? She called out and so she felt surrounded by that but she kept breathing in right to where this shaking, quaking, very scary feeling was in her body. And um, this time she totally stayed. She said, the way she described to me, she said, I dropped any resistance at all. I just kept calling out and sensing that presence of love and letting myself feel kind of ripped up and squeezed and, 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 just, and felt the whole thing moving through me. And she said, the more she was there without any resistance at all, the more she found her, she said, that loving presence is what I am. She said it was like being this open sky and all the storm was going through it, but she wasn't the storm. She wasn't the victim of the storm. She was that, that great open sky. She was the one that had the hand on her heart offering the message, not the victim inside. So that was her realization that the good fairy or the Divine Mother she said, that is who I am. Doesn't mean that she didn't feel herself as an, on earth as a self that was struggling with things, but she had a sense of the mystery and vastness and love that really was her deepest nature. She was the one she was calling on. A poem I share uh, as regularly as I can because I find it so valuable is written by the poet Rashani. There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depth emerges strength. 
There's a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There's a cry deeper than all sound whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside that is unbreakable and whole. to maybe finish up the story of this woman which is over the years, it took months and years of a continuing to come into presence and reclaim her power and her spontaneity and her humor, all of which got buried under the wound, under the scabs. So she had many, many rounds of feeling the clutch again, of feeling kind of rising sense of shame or fear or anger. But she knew the pathway home. So, as I sometimes describe it, the lag time decreases. Initially, the lag time is really stretched out that we get caught in reactivity and we forget about presence and we forget about love and we're just living as the reactive self. And gradually, as we practice meditation, as we sit and practice and get the knack of, oh, drifted, went off into something, come back, that happens in our life too. We go, oh, okay, I've been off in a trance. Pause. Pause. Okay, what's true? And sometimes it feels too stirred up and I can't be with what's true, so okay, call on love. Call on loving presence. And we, the more that you call on loving presence, the more you find it's there. One person shared uh, over the weekend when I was working with some people how initially the idea of calling out felt weak and contrived. You know, he had, been kind of, he had grown up in a, in a family that I think was Catholic and he was completely, the word God was way too loaded and the idea of prayer was just um, felt like something that was not going to work. So when he began to re-enter, what does it mean, what is mindful prayer? What is it like to really feel a sense of longing and yearning? And from that, inhabiting that yearning, calling on what is always and already here, but we've forgotten. And he said he called out and, and he got this message that came back that was really, if only you'll remember to call, I'm here. And the I'm here, the one that's here, was not some distant God up on a cloud, it was really the wholeness and the mystery and the goodness of his own presence. When we first call out, loving presence seems like something outside of us because we're feeling separate and stuck and regressed and not okay. That's the magic of prayer. I often quote John O'Donohue who said, that prayer is the bridge between longing and belonging. That we feel our longing, we reach out, and the sincerity of reaching out carries us back home to the truth of what's always been here. So as this woman described in the fairy story, that fairy that she'd been calling on was her own inner wisdom. It was her own awakened heart. But she didn't know it when she was feeling the, caught in the woundedness. So there's some stepping stone of prayer which is powerful and healing. The more that we touch that sense of belonging, the more we have room for what's going on. And most everyone here has touched it in some way that you know matters, you, whether it's in a relationship with your child or a parent or a partner or a good friend, just sensing how that bond in some way helps to make this world more uh, manageable. I've been with people who are dying who have said, who've known, you know, for for months that they're going to die, that have said that if it weren't for that refuge of community, of sensing the love of the people around them, it would have been too much. But knowing that was there, it's manageable. It's the sense that if you trust you're the ocean, you're not afraid of the waves. The nature of emotional reactivity, 
is feeling cut off. In fact, the more you're feeling afraid or ashamed or angry, the more if you paid attention you'd find you're in this trance of a self in here and a world out there and very cut off. We don't feel connected when we're in reactivity. Trauma is an extreme expression of reactivity. In trauma, we're entirely cut off. And it's uh, mirrored in the body because the actual connection between the limbic system and the frontal lobes gets singed in a way that there's not a back-forth communication that lets us remember and know the bigger reality. In a moment of trauma, we're caught in the world of the limbic system and it's like, this is all there is and it's terrible. We need to forge a pathway that reconnects with wholeness. And this training to reach towards loving presence gives us that pathway. So let's um, do a meditation together that will just give you a taste of how to begin to find refuge in loving presence. This meditation is kind of the gist of everything I've been talking about is a lot of words, but if you can begin to actually experientially explore this, then you will have a, uh, something sacred that you can turn to. And my caveat before leading this, it's not long, but my caveat is, as with all guided meditations, this is a life practice. So if in the next seven minutes you say, well, I didn't touch into anything, or, you know, I didn't really find my true refuge of loving presence, not to worry, okay? This is just a template that you can explore on your own. It's as the poet Hafiz said, ask the friend for love. Ask him again, for I have found that every heart will get what it asks for for most. Every heart will get what it prays for most. Just over and over again, reach towards love. So make yourself comfortable. Let your attention go inward. You might close your eyes. And take a few full breaths again as we did earlier and just let the breaths energize you and open you and connect you. Long, deep in-breath. And a slow out-breath, just gently letting go, letting go. And again, a full in-breath. And with the out-breath relaxing, letting go. We begin with a little bit of a visualization and if you're not visual, just to kind of feel your way into it. To bring to mind what you might consider to be sacred space. And by that I mean any place, either real or imagined, that emanates a sense of beauty and safety. So it could be a place you know that you love beach by the ocean or something in the mountains, desert, river. Could be an indoor space, perhaps your bedroom or a part of your house you love. Could be a temple or sanctuary, some church, place where it feels very conscious and lovely to you. Imagine this place and sense it right here. So you can see the forms and the shape and the light. Imagine the smells. And in this place, sense that you can call on some embodiment of loving presence. So just to feel your own sincerity of your intention to connect with loving presence. 
and sense what embodiment or expression comes to mind. It might be for some the Buddha, feeling that you could be held in the heart of the Buddha, as the Dalai Lama puts it. For some it might be the Bodhisattva of compassion, Kuan Yin, or some expression of the Divine Mother, Goddess. Might be Jesus. Might be Great Spirit, some part of the earth itself, tree. Could be a friend of yours that you can sense that what lives through this being, through his or her heart and mind, is really a purity of loving presence. A grandparent, a child, it could be your dog, any being that in some way connects you with a sense of loving presence. Imagine this being or figure and sense the eyes that look at you with love and understanding. So you really sense a very immediate presence. And allow yourself to open to where there may be a reactivity in your life, a difficult emotional situation something you're struggling with, where you feel fear, anger, or hurt. Sensing what's most difficult about this, what you're afraid of, what you're most upset about. And as you do, you might put your own hand on your heart to just connect with where the difficulty is in your body. Imagine that you can bring this feeling and this situation to this figure of loving presence that you can sense this being beholding you with total love and that this being's love is moving right through your hand into wherever you feel difficulty so that as you continue to stay and let yourself sense what's real, what's difficult, what's hurting you can also sense that you've called on loving presence and that this loving presence can help to hold the experience like an ocean holds waves on its surface. If you feel disconnected from what's difficult, just have the sense of intention to just feel what's true, what hurts, where the fear is. And if you have difficulty feeling the love that's holding, just feel your hand and change the pressure so it's very tender. And just call on loving presence to come through your hand and to help to soothe and bathe and comfort where the fear or hurt is. can help to feel the breath breathing in and letting it touch the most vulnerable place in you. And breathing out and sense that you can let go, surrendering the vulnerability into a field of loving presence.
you might sense if there's a message from loving presence, from the wisdom and compassion of loving presence, a message to your own being, something important to remember. Sensing the possibility of reaching out and connecting with loving presence. Rilke puts it this way, I yearn to belong to something, to be contained in an all-embracing mind that sees me as a single thing. I yearn to be held in the great hands of your heart. Oh, let them take me now, into them I place these fragments my life, and you, God, spend them however you want. In these last few moments, sensing a field of love, of presence that can hold this life. And just let go into that, let go into this space this love, this radiance, and sense that this is what you are, the deepest truth of what you are, is loving presence. We close with a prayer May we each awaken to realize the loving presence that is our source. May we inhabit loving presence and may we live from loving presence. May all beings everywhere realize the truth of who they are. May all beings touch great and natural peace. May there be peace on earth, peace everywhere. May all beings awaken and be free. Namaste. The teaching you have received has been freely offered. If you would like to contact the Insight Meditation Community of Washington to make a donation or to learn more about our programs, please visit our website at www.imcw.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.